There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I'm excited to have Simi Shah with me today, who, small world, I had her sister on a webinar that I hosted, gosh, a month or two ago about the hospitality world. And I've since found out that a friend of mine went to school with you or your sister, or maybe both of you all, Abhinav Samani. I think it might have been your, your sister at NYU. Yeah. So a lot of shared connections. So I'm excited to, to get into it and hear more about your story because I think it's super interesting. But before I get into a lot of the hard questions, maybe just give a little bit of background on yourself and your focus right now. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on, Brent. Super, super excited to be here. Uh, a little bit about myself. Uh, I'm Simi Shah. I was born and raised in the Atlanta area, grew up immersed in the hotel hospitality industry and banking business uh, with my father. So always had a bit of a penchant inclination towards the business and finance world. Uh, ended up going to Harvard for college where I studied economics and government. I graduated in 2019 and pursued a career in private equity for a little under a year. I spent time as an investment analyst with the Audex Group out of Boston, where I covered portfolio companies across tech and consumer, and of course, helped them diligence new deals coming through the pipeline. After some time there, decided to transition over to a media startup called Paperwork Studios, where I currently lead business development. Paperwork Studios builds hyper-targeted publications for niche professionals working in niche industry functions. Um, and there, a lot of my work is operationally focused on honing our business model and working on different operational strategies 
strategies, as well as identifying new niche audiences that we might target for a publication. On the side, I run a platform called South Asian Trailblazers, where I highlight pioneering leaders and innovators who are South Asian, um, as well as a sister platform called Shop South Asian, building a resource network for South Asian entrepreneurs. I stay involved with the Harvard alumni community and also fellow, fellow for Yard Ventures, Harvard-led alumni startup fund. And yeah, that's a little bit about myself. That's a lot about yourself. And <laughs> as a as a father of two little boys, I need to get some notes from your parents about <laughs> how they raised two incredible uh, young women that do. You manage to squeeze more out of every day than, than I think I do in a week between you and your <laughs> sisters. So super impressive. And I, I kind of want to start with that. Obviously, this conversation's about you, but but family is really important for you. And your dad or your parents started this incredible organization that maybe not a lot of folks are aware of. And the, I wasn't familiar with the breadth of it until I started doing business with, with my partner, who is Indian American. Can you maybe talk about the organization that, that your dad started and just give people some reference points about how large and impressive it is? Yeah. So this is one of my favorite stories and it's not even my own, but it's one I've grown up hearing. So my dad immigrated to this country in the early 80s to work as a nuclear engineer. And he just got really tired of leaving before the sun rose and coming home after the sunset. So uh, one day after being laid off, he drove down south to meet up with some of his siblings who were also based out of, at the time, South Carolina and a little bit of Georgia. And he would just every day scour the newspapers for business to buy. That's like all he wanted to do. And we laugh about it to this day because it could have ended up being anything. He almost bought a liquor store, but before we know it, he ended up buying a days in and this predates me. My sister's 10 years older than me. So she grew up more in this world than I did, but he bought a days in based out of Milledgeville, Georgia. And eventually, uh, since in the last 30 years with, uh, the help of his brother and brother-in-law, has grown it to a portfolio of about 11 hotels. Um, they're based out of the Atlanta area. They have an entire operational function, uh, managing each of these hotels, developing them from scratch. And he also was one of the co-founders of the Asian American Hotel Owners Association, which is probably one of the largest trade organizations out there dedicated to hoteliers in the space. I think some, it's some percentage like one in every two hotels in the States is owned by an Indian American, not even Asian American. And it's just been really exciting to be a part of that growth and see how it cycled over the years, see the new generation come into the business. And then on the side, my dad decided that he wasn't doing enough. We definitely are a family of multi-hyphenates and decided to launch a community bank right down the street from our house in Duluth, Georgia. So that's a little bit about my family and what they're up to. Yeah. And and for those who aren't familiar, the, the hotel organization is like massive. Yes. And they have these big conferences, I think annually, maybe. Yes. I had the chance to go as a guest to one in, it was a Gaylord property outside of DC. I think it was Maryland. Um, oh, interesting. Uh, I mean, probably five years ago, four years ago. And I mean, they're big (laughs) and and people have have like a good time. It's really cool. There's obviously a lot of business that goes on, but also a lot of community building. And it's really impressive. And you'll you'll end up drinking scotch late at night with (laughs) some some uncle that you don't know very well, but it's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I, I hope they come back with, with, with COVID being, uh, turning the corner here. So for those who aren't familiar, definitely, you know, if you're interested in that space, it's a huge resource and an awesome community. I definitely encourage you to, to get involved. Um, Absolutely. so, you know, being in Atlanta and growing up in that type of family, 
entrepreneurial, successful? Was there a lot of pressure to succeed early on and in, within the community and within the family yourself? I don't think so. I think it's hard for me still to reflect because I, I feel like I'm in the thick of my career, at least in terms of early stage terms. But my parents were always very open with letting us do what we wanted to do. And oftentimes my mom still jokes. She's like, sometimes I would encourage you to slow down and you would be like, stop demotivating me. And I think we had just grown up seeing my dad and my mom accomplish so much, build this life from scratch here in America that we wanted to help compound what they'd created. We wanted to make them proud. And I think the other part of it was I especially grew up in a time where my dad had a lot of flexibility being that he ran his own business. He could take us to India for several months at a time. He could come home early from work if he needed to take me somewhere. My mom was always very present taking me places. And I, I appreciated that flexibility so much. And my dad was very good about emphasizing the fact that because he was an entrepreneur, that's why he was able to afford that lifestyle and give us the life we had. And I think that's motivated me and my sister from a very young age that we wanted to build a life like his, where he was very present, had a lot of fun, but also was successful and had done a lot for the community around him. Well, and obviously, you know, going to Harvard, you know, what was that like experientially, you know, being from not just Atlanta, but the family that you grew up in and, you know, what were the kind of experiences that you had there? Yeah, I think one of the best ways that I encapsulated it when I graduated was I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. I think like I have never seen my parents as proud as they were on the day that I got accepted. And I had no idea what to expect when I went there. I had this idea in my head that was carefully constructed by all the movies we watch and pop culture references to Harvard. And in some ways it was exactly what I expected. In some ways it was nothing like I expected. But I think the some of the benefits of being from the South and not having been an environment, necessarily an environment that was cur- like, it, it's not like I went to a school that was a feeder for kids to Harvard. And there are schools like that, that, you know, just pump out kids that go to Ivy's. I think I had the benefit of like growing up in like a very culturally rich, humble, modest community, and then going to a place like Harvard, where everyone has accomplished so much and doing so much, but they're also incredibly humble about what they do. And it's so diverse that I think it just gave me the opportunity to learn about so many different things, so many different paths I could take that I think even my parents who were once upon a time, very insistent that I go to business school and law school, like my sister were like, Oh, like, there's all these different paths. She's clearly surrounded by the right crowd of people. And it was the most phenomenal experience of my life. If I could do it over again, I would a hundred times over. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, I want to talk about that. I didn't realize there's a 10 year gap. So my business partner, and I hate to use him as like a proxy, but this is the closest experience I have for those of you listening. I'm just a white dude from New York. My business partner grew up in Long Island. His parents emigrated from India in the eighties as well. His father's a professor and there was obviously a lot of pressure to get into the best school. He went to Cornell and there was kind of like, are you going to go to law school or, or medical school type of like, what's your choice going to be? Right. You have all these choices and there's like really bifurcated. Do you think you had the benefit of having that gap of experience and age and time for your parents and you to realize that there's a big world out there and and you can do different things? Absolutely. And it, it, that's exactly what it was. I think, 
my sister has carved an incredibly successful path for herself and follows much more in the footsteps of my dad than I, I at least have thus far. But I think that added 10 year gap, they saw the ways in which she carved her path, did some things that were traditional in the sense of like, she graduated college and went straight to grad school and things that were untraditional in terms of becoming a JD MBA, which is obviously you know, a, a marker of success in and of itself. But I think even for my parents, it gave them the added benefit of 10 years where once upon a time, my dad had been an engineer and then he became a hotel developer and owner. And then he went into banking. So he even had the opportunity along with my mom to see, wow, there's so much out there that you could be doing that I think it's opened up their mind to the world that I've entered into, you know, going into private equity after college, which my dad knew a ton about in terms of reading, but obviously hadn't spent time in and has made them a lot more amenable to that. Because I think even over the course of the four years I was at Harvard, they saw how driven I was and how like I personally want to be successful, that they don't think I need just the traditional markers of success to be successful. They understand I'll get there one way or the other. At least I, I hope that that's how they feel. <laughs> And, and even though Harvard obviously is an incredible place, very diverse, it seems like you really embraced that. Did you feel a little bit boxed in as if everyone you knew was going to consulting or financial services or Wall Street? Because you went on that path and then experienced it and it looked like you pivoted. Yeah. So did you feel that that kind of maybe that you're in a bit of a corner? Yeah. You know, I'll never knock a liberal arts degree because I see the value I obtained from it. But at the same time, it makes it a lot harder to explore in terms of a trade, what you want to do post-college. I studied economics and unless I wanted to be an economist, that was never directly going to translate into a specific field. And so it was very natural for me to gravitate towards the common things that my peers were doing that seemed lucrative, that seemed like they set people up for success later down the line. So I don't think at the time I felt boxed. In retrospect, I think I had more tunnel vision than I realized. But you know, despite the fact that I pivoted, pivoted from private equity to working at a media startup, you know, le less than a year out of college, I know that I wouldn't have the opportunity I have now working at this startup in a senior role if I hadn't spent that time in finance, doing internships at Wellington and Lazard, and then eventually, you know, working in private equity because it is such a unique learning experience. It's it's a fast track to financial modeling and understanding how businesses work. A lot of core skills that I think are relevant no matter what field you choose to pursue. And and your experience there, obviously Wall Street's been under the microscope recently with, with COVID and the culture there. Did you have similar experiences in terms of lack of quality of life and a fairly stringent work environment? Yeah. And I think for me, that was probably the primary reason I felt the need to pivot. You know, as I mentioned, I grew up in a family of multi-hyphenates. I don't know how to do anything but multitask. And when you're working in an environment where, you know, be because of the work that needs to get done in the type of world that it is, you're spending upwards of 80 to 90 hours a week on work. I didn't have the opportunity to explore those other interests. And I think it scared me because I said, what if this isn't my lifelong passion and I don't have any time on this side to explore what those other passions might be? I have an immense respect for the people that I've worked with and the people that have found that to be their passion. I think it's, it's like I said, truly an in, like, incomparable learning environment. But 
yeah, the, the pressure is there. I think the culture is definitely due for a reckoning if they want to keep pe- retain people over time because there's too much other opportunity out there. And they're going to keep losing junior level employees, particular, particularly minorities and women, if that doesn't change. Yeah, I personally am super interested to see where talent goes now that tech is really becoming the future of the Amer- of the world economy in many ways. I mean, uh, you saw Coinbase come out IPO and their market cap is like commensurate with JP Morgan's out of the box. Yeah. And those things are just incredible to me. And so I'm not sure if the typical two years being an analyst at, at Goldman and then going to B school, I don't know if that value proposition is going to, is going to work down the line with, with younger folks. It'd be really interesting to see if how they pivot or what happens there. I don't know if you have thoughts along those lines. Yeah, absolutely. I have been saying this for a couple of years, but I think there, you know, maybe even 10 years ago, there wasn't necessarily that optionality where you could find a space that offered you work-life balance, set you up for future success and was lucrative. Tech has really cornered that market of late. You know, they're, they do offer work-life balance. They offer a ton of amenities. You can make an incredible salary just being out of undergrad. And finance is going to have to step up to compete because, like I said, there's just so many opportunities out there that I don't even think there were 10 years ago. And with the access to information and resources we have through the internet and crowdsourcing of opportunities, it's becoming easier and easier for people like myself to find that. That I, I think each industry that isn't, you know, up to par with with respect to that is going to have to shape shift a little bit. I think there's always going to be people that are much more interested in the life on Wall Street and and going specifically into financial markets. But that being said, I think the degree to which people are interested in that, the length of time that they stay might change. Like I said, because of how much optionality is out there and the access we have to understanding what those opportunities we are there are. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think Wall Street did a really good job building a moat around themselves since the 80s and, you know, making a lot of money doing so. But increasingly, even my business is just a fractionalization of ownership of commercial real estate. And I mean, it's increasingly becoming easier and easier to start these companies for not a lot of, you know, capital outlay initially because of, of what tech enables you to do. And it seems like we're moving towards this democratization of access to information and alternatives and resources and and investments. And, you know, fintech is really driving most of that. So super interesting to see if Wall Street can keep up or if they kind of go the way of the of the dinosaur. And so I guess was there a moment where you said private equity is not for me? I mean, I often will hear people say, it's like a gig you do for three to five years or 30 to 50 years. And, and people know whether or not they're lifers. Did you have an aha moment along those lines? Yeah. To be frank, I think it happened pretty early on when I joined because there, there's a difference between doing something for an internship for eight weeks and doing it full time. Like that's just fact. And there were parts of the work that I liked. There were parts of the work that I didn't like, but I just knew that even over the course of a year or two years, I was not going to get the satisfaction I needed. My parents have always told me, they're like, you lack a little bit of patience in a way that can be good and can be bad. And I actually think in this respect, it came out for the better because when I quit, a lot of people came up to me and said, you know, that's amazing. Like so many people would have such a tough time making that decision. And I like, couldn't wrap my head around that. I was like, 
I'm kind of unhappy. Like this is, I can tell, like, this is an amazing career for some people. It's not for me. And it was basically what they were saying was like, this is such an amazing job that a lot of people would have a hard time leaving it. And I, I find that baffling and I'm in a, in a way happy that I found that baffling, but I I think it was, it was a gradual progression towards what is it that I actually want to be doing and spending time on. And it became clearer and clearer that media and learning how to build a business and working at a startup was, was much closer to that. And so it wasn't, I'm going to try and go work in another part of finance or a part of finance that offers me more work-life balance. It was like, no, what's the actual thing that I think I could be passionate about? So I don't know that there was an aha moment, but it, you know, it, it definitely started. You know, there was a seed planted, I think, early on, just in terms of how I felt at work every day. Yeah, and increasingly, what I hear from I'm like barely a millennial, but I do qualify, even though I'm, I'm old. But it seems like this workforce that is you know, gaining leadership positions in the economy is realizing that these younger employees, it's not just about the money and the value proposition of just putting in your time and getting money in return is not as attractive as it was for prior generations. And people really wanna be part of a community and be a part of something that's exciting and also economically viable. And it seems like people like yourself have been able to find that sweet spot of matching their passion with their professional acumen, which is r- really impressive. Yeah. And and your point on the generational difference is huge because we, we have three generations so easily visible within my nuclear family. It's my dad, my sister, and I. My dad very much came from the generation where it's like, do what you got to do to put food on the table because you have to feed your family. My sister had a little bit more flexibility, but she was part of the recession generation. So to her, it was still like, how do I carve out a relatively straightforward path, which she's a multi-hyphenate, like I said, but I think had a little bit higher tolerance for putting up with that sort of environment. My generation, not like that at all. I think I have a lot of friends that have done their two years and are now starting to transition out, but started thinking the same way that I did pretty early on about how do I maximize her passion, economics, and everything else. Yeah, super impressive. And I I just see more and more of that with the younger folks that we bring into our companies and, and, and talk to. So you made this transition... Talk about what it is exactly the company does or what this media startup is focused on. Yeah. So I'll preface this by saying that when I when I left Audax, I did not have a plan. I just knew that I, I was a little bit afraid that if I just I was so keen on potentially leaving and figuring out that thing that I was going to jump to the first thing I saw and I didn't want to do that. So I decided to leave without a plan, take a beat, take a breath. The unfortunate thing was the pandemic hit a week after I left. And so I ended up having a little bit a lot of conversations that I was having with startups ended up going on pause. And so I ended up having a little bit more of a break than I anticipated, but I feel really fortunate in that I landed at Paperwork. So Paperwork Studios is a media startup that was incubated out of Create Venture Studio based out of New York. Venture Studios are this new model where they basically have a team of people whose job it is to ideate businesses, think about them from concept to launch. And then they'll bring on a founder and build a team to actually run that business. And it basically becomes independently run, but always has this Venture Studios backing. And it's initially funded by a a club of investors that belong to the studio. So I happened upon paperwork last uh, early last summer when they were just about to go through that launch phase where the founder was joining. And the whole 
the whole business model is based on the idea that there are entire audiences of industry executives who don't have content catered towards them. So I work in finance, but I work as an investment analyst within private equity. I read the Wall Street Journal, but everyone in finance reads the Wall Street Journal. How do I have a publication that's directly catered to my job as a member of the deal team in private equity? And so basically our whole goal is to find some of those underserved niche audiences and create those publications and communities for them. And so to date, we've launched one called The Filament, which is for diversity practitioners working in the tech sector. So like the chief diversity officers at Salesforce or any other tech startup. And another for investor relations professionals working in private markets, specifically in venture capital and private equity. And a lot of my role is figuring out what publication three, four, five, and onward are going to look like, as well as the operational components, like I mentioned. Start. So I want to break down this venture studio concept. I've never heard of this before. Yeah. I'm going to do a really poor job of trying to explain it back to you. It's a group of investors that put their own capital into a, a bucket and then they bring entrepreneurs into their community and have them come up with ideas. And then once they like an idea, they fund it and then build a team around it. And they have some kind of equity in that concept. Is that exactly? Okay. Now, cool. Yeah. They're, grow- they're growing in prominence just because I think it's the idea that it's a smaller club of investors, often people that are investors or people that have experience running their own businesses so they can really quickly identify things and also support the building from it at step zero rather than step you know, 0.5 or one. But it, it's a really incredible concept. And part of the excitement of, of working in that sort of environment is you get to see what other businesses are being built and working within the media world that we do hearing some of that and being involved in that is just really exciting and informs a lot of our work on a day-to-day basis. Super cool. And I I like how, obviously, the moment you made your transition was challenging, right? I mean, timing is always hard, but you talked about what you do as your day job, but you also started these, I don't want to call them side hustles because they're real ventures or endeavors, but you've also got this Harvard South Asian alumni investment group that you started coterminous along with your podcast, which Trailblazers, which we'll talk about later, but you kind of did all three of them at the same time. They all live in the same ecosystem, but they serve kind of different populations. I assume there's interplay between them and cross-pollination as well, right? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Trailblazer started as a pandemic project and just, I love talking to people. It's a key part of my job. It's something that I missed when I was in private equity. And I love creating content. And as I'm sure you know, creating a podcast is such an easy way to combine some of those loves. And then, yeah, I also fellow for this venture firm that is affiliated with Harvard. They they often invest with Harvard-affiliated or Harvard-led startups. And it's just really exciting. There is so much cross-pollination between my day job and people that I'll talk to that I'll be like, oh, maybe I should recruit this person to be on my podcast or vice versa. I'll be talking to someone for a podcast and I say oh, you work in this interesting space, could it potentially be served by a publication? And that synergistic phenomenon that happens is my favorite part of what I do every day because it feels like everything is helping each other. It's all moving parts of a well-oiled machine that is my life. And I wouldn't have been able to create that in my previous role or in a non-pandemic world, to be totally honest. And I feel really grateful for the privileges I've had to be able to do that. Yeah, it is incredible. And and to reinforce... People ask me, because I did the podcast as a pandemic response as well. And it's super, it's, I love it. 
I think when people ask, oh, isn't it a lot of work, et cetera, it's not that much work. It's like a couple hundred dollars of, of tech equipment and your community. But to, to, to demonstrate to people, I think this is how this works. I think Simi blind emailed me or shot me a note on LinkedIn to ask about family office stuff because she saw that I was involved in family office community. We had a call. Then she introed me to Millie. I then had Millie on my webinar about uh, hotels in the pandemic and what's happening there to act as a resource because we have a large Indian investment community that also has exposure in the hospitality world. And then my my business partner's friend from Edison, New Jersey, realized that he went to school with Millie. And now Simi is on my podcast talking about everything that she's doing. So it's just like this super cool way to meet people and you're part of the media. Like you get access and you get to say, Hey, you should come on the show and just talk about what you're doing. And there's, I don't see any downside to doing an episode a week. Like everyone's got an hour of their time and you've got compelling people in your community, in your world. And it just gets these deeper connections and you get an excuse to hear people's stories and and work with them. And like, I'm sure you and I are going to trade introductions and referrals down the road as well. It's just super cool way to do business in my opinion. I I totally agree. And I I after leaving school, one of the things I've struggled with most is how to keep learning. And talking to people is one of the easiest ways to do that. And in particularly in a podcast setting where it's really just talking to someone about their life and not, you know, a specific topical focus, it lends itself to that completely. And I just that's my favorite part of it. It's very it, it's very selfish in its own way, but it's something that at the end of the day we get to share with the world. So and I tell my team, you all each need to have your individual brand. And as part of that brand, you need to find a couple of things you're passionate about and start creating content around that because it's, yes. it is the easiest way to gain new exposure and new connections and act as a magnet for like-minded people to just get in touch with you. And then you end up talking about business, right? I mean, this is just the way it works. It's so much easier than like hard pitching people or asking them for a phone call or coffee. So this is, I think the, everyone should have their own podcast. Everyone should be creating content and, and kind of building that, that, you know, ecosystem and that community around them. So. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think the future of most institutions, and we're especially seeing financial institutions starting to embark on this, is producing content catered to your customer, your consumer, your community that you're trying to build. I mean, that's no better demonstrated by, than by A16Z, which is a venture capital behemoth who's basically now launching an entire media arm, right? I think that nature of being able to build a personal brand, own an audience, and then take that audience and do something with it, like building a newsletter or building a podcast is really the future of where where things are going. We see it on the spectrum of influencers to Substack. And I, yeah, I, I think it's going to be a really incredible phenomenon and something that people are going to have to engage with. And the last thing I'll say on that is, I think the best part about it for me has also been when I first came out of college and was working in PE, I felt like I wasn't going to be able to have that sort of access or work on building my network for another five to 10 years because of the way things are structured. My job was not to talk to people. It was about sitting in the numbers, doing the diligence, and you learn a ton. But doing this sort of work, podcasting, being in a media role, being at a startup, that is my job. You know, I don't have to wait five years to make that a part of my job, which is another really beautiful component of where I feel I'm at now. Yeah. And also for people listening, the best way to get somebody that you want to do business with 
is flattering them by asking them to be a guest on your show. Yes. <laughs> like this is the easiest no brainer thing to do. The best way to build a relationship. So we're, we're, I want to be mindful of time. We've been chatting for a while, which is great. So trailblazers, South Asian diaspora, entrepreneurs, business leaders, uh, community leaders, you've been doing it for a while now. What are the themes and the key takeaways that you keep hearing over and over again when you have these conversations? Yeah. So just to give a little bit of background, I interview leaders and innovators across a variety of sectors and spaces. So media, tech, politics, you name it. And uh, we produce it every other week. Each season is about 10 episodes. We're currently in the midst of our second season. It'll be ending in, in a couple of short weeks. And I think some of the biggest learnings have been it, from, from a big picture perspective, there's so much value in talking to people that don't necessarily sit within your industry. I've learned so much by talking to the folks that work in journalism, by talking to people that works in product, that work in product. Just last week, I interviewed uh, the former chief product officer at Uber, and he was talking to me about how he built Google Maps from scratch in India. And there's just so much insight and perspective that you gain from that, from, from a more local perspective in terms of key takeaways. I think a lot of the things are, you know, don't be afraid to take risks. You know, don't be afraid to do the the non-traditional thing. Be as helpful as you can to people, people, even when it's not necessarily expected to generate anything in return, which is a life lesson my dad has taught me my entire life. And then I think, you know, there it really stretches across the industry of the person I'm talking to. For people in media, often it's about you know, how do we transform media to bring it into the modern era? Because it is changing. The face of it is changing. For the people that I talk to that are VCs or investors or entrepreneurs, a lot of it is how they're building for South Asian communities, what the landscape of capital raising looks like nowadays, how they what their what their theses are. And just being able to acquire that wealth of knowledge through an hour conversation with someone, you know, 10 times a season is is absolutely incredible. And I I love doing it. And I think the point of having shared heritage not only opens itself to questions that they're probably not usually asked in an interview setting or Q&A setting, but also has enabled me to foster a closer relationship with them in those conversations. Yeah. For, for anybody interested in just hearing really cool stories from super interesting people, she gets some killer guests on here. So I definitely recommend checking out Trailblazers, both the, obviously the podcast itself, as well as the newsletter that she puts out. Definitely worth your, your, your while. And then let's same question and, and give some background as well in context about the, the Harvard South Asian investment club. That might not be the right way to put it, but that you started also. Yeah. So, so the, so I started a sister platform called shop South Asian at trailblazers and shop South Asian is we're basically building a community and resource network for South Asian entrepreneurs. And there's two reasons I decided to start this. As I was doing Trailblazers, I ended up in conversation with a lot of entrepreneurs who were interested in collaborating with us, et cetera. And it just became really obvious to me that they were lacking in some resources that I think are are just need to be made accessible to a lot of SMBs. Just, you know, knowledge and access that I've had through through my different roles and my time at Harvard about what a pitch deck should look like. How do you even access angel investors? What are the, you know, key components of PPP that I should be thinking about with respect to my business? How do I hire people? How do I do taxes? And I just saw an unfulfilled need there. I think the second component of it was this is one of my strong suits. I love thinking about business. I love, you know, I grew up in an environment where my dad as a banker helped small business 
businesses every day, particularly within our community. And as I've seen a lot of more South Asian oriented businesses cropping up, many of whom are venture backed, like uh, there's a social shopping platform called Ria Collective that originally started as the Rent the Runway for South Asian fashion wear. There's the Juggernaut, which is basically creating the Atlantic, but for South Asians, where it's doing deep media reporting on stories related to South Asians in South Asia. And so I thought, you know, if we're able to curate those sorts of products for South Asians, there's clearly a lot of buying power here. There's a lot of interest here. These people are very smart. It's just about connecting them and providing those resources. And it's been a really exciting endeavor. We just launched our first speaker series, which will be coming up in May and are hoping to do a whole lot more with this community in terms of, you know, providing them opportunities, connecting them to resources and just getting to know them better. Yeah. And it's incredible. And I remember, I think I read in the Atlantic recently that the South Asian community is one of the fastest growing populations in America and has been for the last, I think, 10, 15 years. So I think it will continue to be a huge addressable market moving forward. So I'm not I'm not trying to signal to your employer that you're making a move, but I mean, what's next? I know you're working on like two or three things, I'm sure. I mean, what's in the hopper? What can we expect to see? Where do you see your various <clears throat> businesses and, and ventures going? Yeah, it's so funny that you asked that. When I first started this podcast, my dad's first question to me was, how do you monetize this? To give you a sense of the family that I grew up in. And I, I love it because it always keeps us thinking one step ahead. You know, I think Shop South Asian is something that I, I think there's a lot of promise there in terms of what we're, we have the capability to build for South Asian entrepreneurs who often tend to be incredible business builders and business owners. And to your point, it's a growing community of people. There, there's a demographic here and they have not always been tra- addressed by traditional businesses that are out there. So I think that's something that in the future definitely has legs. I don't know exactly what that looks like because in tandem with my current job, which is, you know, barely a year old startup, there's a lot going on. But I think in the longer context of things with Trailblazers and Shop South Asian, the core of what it gets to is the core of who I am, the core of how I've grown up. And that's being an entrepreneur. I want to be my own boss. I want to start my own business. I don't know exactly what that looks like, if it'll be an offshoot or bigger version of what I'm already doing or something completely new, but, or, or working with, you know, my family, my sister and my dad, but that is the core of who I am. And I think who I want to be and how I have started to approach every, every leg of, of what I'm doing in my career. So I'm really looking forward to that. I feel like, you know, I, I keep a note on my desktop of every learning I have of, you know, when I, if I'm a boss one day, what are some things I want to keep in mind or bookmarks of tweets from other founders and investors about advice that they have almost in preparation for that moment. And so that's, that's what's next. That's the goal. Well, I, I'm excited to see it. Like I said, your family is a total powerhouse. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm excited to kind of see where it goes moving forward. And Maybe we should do a follow-up and we'll get Millie on here and we'll we'll kind of do ask her some hard questions about what she's been up to as well. Um, Absolutely. And if, she, if she's been busy. So I want to thank you for the time. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you if they want to keep up with all the various things that you're doing? What's a good way for them to connect with you? 
Yeah, I'm usually super accessible via LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, LinkedIn, Simi Shaw, Twitter, Simi Shaw with an underscore at the end. Um, you can also check out some of my work around trailblazers at southasiantrailblazers.com. Um, and I just want to say, Brian, this was an amazing conversation. It's always nice to be able to reflect on what I've done thus far, though it's not a lot, but hopefully more coming in the future. And I really appreciate you taking the time and you know being able to contextualize my family and the relationship you and I have been able to create even over the past couple of months over a cold LinkedIn message is just, it's really telling and, and really amazing. So I really appreciate it. Well, I mean, I think it's a life lesson for all of us that <laughs> don't be afraid to put yourself out there. And, you know, I, it's interesting. I, I do a lot of podcasts as a guest, right? And a lot of people are like, oh, the power of no, you need to be really disciplined <laughs> with your time. And sure, we all have stuff we need to get done. But I've always been like the power of yes. I mean, Lord, if I just had ignored your message or just you never, wouldn't be having this conversation. never had a call with you. And I mean, what a bummer not to have connected with you and, and your sister and, and to know your family and to hopefully meet you all in person soon. Yeah. Um, it would it would kind of lessen my life, right? So I encourage people to to reach out and and be open to making these type of connections. And before we wrap up, I do want to say, I don't know when this will air. But I want to be mindful of the situation in India with COVID. And it's very bad right now. This is the end of April. So I hope you and your family and your extended family are healthy and will kind of hopefully make it out of this difficult period in one piece. So my thoughts are with you and, and your extended family and everybody that's going through a really challenging time right now. Yeah, I, I appreciate that a ton. It's it's very bittersweet when, you know, everyone in the US and everyone we know here is getting vaccinated and returning to a normal life. And the situation in India is getting more dire every day where people are, you know, you see WhatsApp chats fil chats filled with asks for oxygen and medicine and different things like that. So I really appreciate the sentiment. And like I said, Brent, thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited to see where your work goes, where this podcast goes and staying connected uh, awesome. for, for a long while. Thank you, Simi. This was fun. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.